welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Last time I taught, I think I set the record for the longest sermon ever preached at the Garden. That's what I heard, at least from my brother. Um, he may not be the most reliable narrator, but, uh, but I'll take it. Uh, so my promise to you is it will be shorter than that. But we, this text, I'm not going to go through all of it. It is powerfully awakening for what it means about this last pillar that we come to today. So just a quick recap before we go on. We're in this four-week vision series of what does it mean to be the Garden Church. And these things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, they're not specific to the Garden or unique to the Garden, but the, the things that we say without a doubt are something we need to come back to every week. Every time we gather, we might highlight one, one week, one month, one season, but at all times, they're simultaneously pursuing these things. And basically what we've done is we've talked about four key things to ending on the last one today. We've talked about being a church dedicated to formation, that we are people learning to be with Jesus, becoming more like him in thought, in character, and deed. And in essence, a deep part of that is unmistakably that we are committed to mission. We are people who do not exist for our own sake, right? We have God's will in mind, his desire, his longing, and hope for his good creation. We cannot exist for our own sake. In fact, if the gospel that we preach is not good news to the poor and the marginalized, then whatever it is, it is not the gospel of Jesus. Do I need to say that again? If the gospel we preach, all of us, is not good news to the poor and the marginalized, then it is not the gospel of Jesus. We are committed to mission because it's the heartbeat of who we are. Thirdly, and last week, um, we explored what it means to be a church dedicated to God's presence. Are we people growing in relationship with God? We're in that place where we are around him. We ache for what he aches for. We step into the gap, we intercede, we contend, we struggle in prayer to see the world different out of that place of intimacy, or as we come to say, out of that relationship, it directs us to powerful prayers from a powerful place of intimacy. We are dedicated to God's presence. We are a church that wants to host and steward God's presence. And so finally, after that, quick recap, we end today on this series of community. What does it mean to be a community of Jesus' friends and followers? What does it mean to be the family of God? And I have to admit, I prefer the word family to community, but I will say that as I've sat with this, both words, family and community, have so much baggage that need to be unpacked that I don't even know where to begin sometimes. Family, easy. We all have baggage from family, even the best The best families still taint our understanding of the word family in such a way that we need healing. Even the best parents, the best families will do that because we all know the sting of broken relationships, right? We know grief and loss or betrayal or distance or whatever it is. And so we need to discover and pursue healing in family in order for it to be restored again. Now, the word community is a little different because I think there's just a, it's a generational buzzword, so don't even get me started on it. I'll just say this. I'm tired of the word community. 
community can be so bland. I mean, just, I feel like it's a marketing term more than it's an actual flesh and blood term. Like Instagram is a community. American Express is a global community. I mean, like literally Chipotle is a community, right? If you have the app, you're a part of our community. 7-Eleven is the Slurpee community, maybe. 7-Eleven exists anymore? I don't know if it does, right? The word has been used so much, it has no real meaning. And, and here's the thing. Community can be so bland that when you say it, faces don't come to mind. Names don't come to mind. Relationships don't come to mind. And a community without names and faces and relationships is just a crowd, no matter how nice people are. And we don't want to be a crowd. We want to be family. We want to be a real community. And while it is a buzzword, one of the things that I've seen most consistently in, as I read Jesus, as I get to know him in prayer, as I see him in the community between people that I know, Jesus has this remarkable ability to take bland and empty words and flip them on their head and imbue them, to re-imbue them, to give them new meaning by the way he uses them and lives them out. Something he does time and time again. Every time they try to catch him in something, he gives them a new definition. Who is my neighbor? He says, well, why don't you tell me? Here's a parable. Which one of these is the neighbor? Right? He constantly is flipping this on his head. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we get to the idea of family, the family of God or community, Jesus, of course, completely subverts our expectations. And as we get to this text today, we'll see why this text specifically is so profound for the book of Matthew. But before we get there, would you just pray with me? Because I know people carry a lot of expectation and burdens when it comes to being a family. So Jesus, we pray for a new space. We pray for a new room to be surprised by your definition by your way of living out community, your way of defining the family of God. Would you open us? Would you heal us? Would you let this space be a place of deep healing? Amen. Now, we've already heard from that marvelous reading uh, from Romy. Thank you again, Romy. Uh, so beautiful. And I love that version of it. It's actually Romy that suggested that version. I was like, can you just do the normal NIV? And then I read because of what she said, the message. And I was like, of course, Eugene Peterson nails this section with, with, with poetry and with power in a way that I love. But I'll be going through, um, uh, well, my, my version is the NASB, but I think we have NIV on the screen. So I'll probably read the screen. But here's the thing we have to know. Before we know the context of that whole passage, we have to know some of the context of what Matthew is doing. And it's crazy because as, as difficult and harsh as the words that Jesus was saying in the text that we, how many heard just for three quarters of it, he is just coming after the Pharisees. The crazy thing is Matthew 11, the chapter right before this, is that famous, come to me all who are weary and burdened and you will find rest for your souls. And then within a chapter, Matthew has him saying, you brood of vipers, you unbelieving generation, you adulterous generation, you will be like a demon-possessed house. And I'm like, man, Jesus, take, take a breather. <laughs> like, my preference is to come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus. Anyone else? Can we go back to that guy? That's who I want. But Matthew is written in such a distinct way to set us up for the very meat and heart of his book. And I mean that because 
Here's the thing, Matthew, and you've heard me say this before, Matthew is written in a very distinct structure. It's called a chiastic or a chiasm structure. And it means it's like a poem where the structure actually carries some of the intentional meaning of what's being said. So Matthew is being written in such a way where the, the ends parallel one another and you actually work your way in the significance of meaning into the middle like a sandwich. The most important parts of the book of Matthew are right in the middle but they parallel side by side. So Matthew 1 is Jesus' genealogy. This will set us up for what we're going. So if you're not nerdy, don't worry about it. It's gonna be really quick. Matthew 1 is Jesus' genealogy. I did not read that because I knew all of you would be bored. But here's the thing, Jesus' genealogy, it's profound because of who they include that you should not include in a royal lineage. Prostitutes, Canaanites, those who are not part of the people of Israel, they're included. Genesis 1 Outsiders get in. Outsiders become insiders. The end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus gathers his best friends, his closest community, the people who followed him through his death and resurrection, and he commissions them and he sends them out. So Matthew begins by making outsiders insiders, and then it ends with insiders being sent out. And right in the middle between these two poles is the text we have today, Matthew 12, Matthew 13. So we have to know just by the structure that Matthew is gonna do something profound here. And we have to know in all of the strength of his language, all the power that Jesus is bringing, the judgment he's bringing against Israel and the Pharisees, this is insider critique. He's not preaching for those outside of the family of God. He is preaching to his own kin. Furthermore, he's preaching mostly to the Pharisees, which if there's any sect of Jewish thinking at the time that Jesus would have most aligned with, it would have been the Pharisees because they were pursuing holiness. And even if they got it wrong, so you have to know that he's not preaching to the outsiders, he's preaching to the insiders because Jesus knows if there is any hope for the renewal of the world, it will begin with the family of God. If the family falls apart, then there is no hope because there is no other plan for God's redemption for the world. And that is the overarching story that we'll just tap into real quick. So Genesis, we're just gonna go through. This is the overarching story. Can God find a people who will be his to rule with? Genesis 1. Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And this little poem break. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's a good example of Hebrew poetry right there. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. This is empowerment, commissioning language. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. From the beginning of Genesis 1, God blesses humankind to co-rule with him, to make something out of the raw goods of the earth. I've heard it one time said, I can't for the life of me remember, but he said that, God created wheat and wheat was good, but man made bread and that is very good. And that's why very good comes after the day humanity is created because he's looking for a partner. 
What are we going to do with the raw goods? But if you know the story, you know very quickly that everything goes wrong real quick. Adam and Eve, the humanity, we fail to trust God's good wisdom to decide what is good and what is bad, what is tov and what is raw. And because human beings do that, they subvert their own authority and they hand it over. Within one generation, brothers start killing one another. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And Genesis is a story about God saying, okay, it's not going to work to choose all of humanity to co-rule. So I'm going to call one man and his family. And I'm going to choose them not because they're special or they're smarter or they're brighter, but because they're really obscure. They're off on the side. They can't really change the world without me. That's why I'm going to choose them. But if I choose them, and they become my people, something good can happen from it. That is the scandal of the book of Genesis, as Terence Fretheim says. He says this was an initially exclusive move by choosing one family, but it was for a maximally inclusive end. That is the redemption of creation. So this is the great calling of the people of Israel to be the family of God. This is God's plan for the redemption of the world. And it's in light of that familiar story that Jesus brings out his best prosecutor voice to the religious leaders of the day. And that's what we just heard in chapter 12. Jesus is taking Israel to task. He is reminding them of who they're supposed to be. And they play right into his hand. It's like uh, Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, where he like just says one thing after the other. And finally, there's this breaking point, right? And that great line, you can't handle the truth. You need me on that wall. You want me on that wall. If you haven't seen that, it's an amazing movie. It's literally one of those movies that if it's on TV, you have to just stop and watch it, regardless of where it's at. I have to like watch that movie. And if you haven't seen it, you're either too young or I don't know what you've been doing for 30 years, but go watch it. (laughs) This is what Jesus is doing. He's using these instances and Matthew brilliantly puts these stories in a way that tells us what Jesus is doing because all these accounts by showing how Israel did not live up to their expectation of being the family of God, Jesus reveals to us by their absence what he expects for his family. By saying, these are the things you don't have, he reveals to us what it means to be the family of God. And he comes out swinging because he begins, and we'll go through these really fast so that we can end because I also want to honor my my shorter sermon. (laughs) He He starts by attacking their Sabbath. He says, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what that means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What a weird way to start condemning someone as their practice of Sabbath. But you have to know the Sabbath for Jewish people was the crown jewel of their life. It was the most defining feature of their religious life. In Genesis, it says, It says, you keep the Sabbath holy, the day, right? And then at the law, at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, there's some beautiful stories that talk about the rabbi saying, actually, when God marries the people of Israel, Israel marries the Sabbath, and by keeping her holy, they are kept holy. By keeping Sabbath holy, we are kept holy. And he's reminding them at the thing that they're most proud of, you have failed to be holy before God. 
Now, I know that holiness has a connotation of purity by itself or moral integrity. And yes, those things all get wrapped up into it. But the best definition, just so we can be clear of what holiness means, comes from a rabbi named Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And he simply says this, that for something to be common or secular or or, um, the opposite of holy, it basically means the space where God makes room for humanity, for their, their wills, their creative endeavors, their work, their contribution. But holy places and holy times are the places where human beings withdraw their will to fully be resounding for God's will, right? That's why there can be holy pots in the tabernacle, That's why there's holy things because it's about how are you setting this up for God's will and purpose? Something is holy if it's set aside, set apart for God's will and purpose. And he's saying you failed to do that. And the family of God can't do that. They have to be about God's will. Then he comes after their spiritual authority. When he casts out a demon and he says this line, any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And he goes on to talk about it, but he comes after their spiritual authority because they accuse Jesus of driving out the devil with the devil. That's how confused they are. They've so given their spiritual authority away that they cannot make heads or tails of real power. They've so pursued the power by allegiance with Rome or by rule keeping or by social power over the people beneath them that they don't even know what real authority looks like. And Jesus says, if I command by the finger of God these demons to go, who do you say I am? They've forgotten what spiritual authority is. And the family of God must grow in spiritual authority. And then thirdly, he condemns their character. And this is a line we've all heard before. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And this is when he says that great line, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of which fills the heart. The religious leaders are more content being perceived as good. They are bad trees producing bad fruit rather than actually being good. How many of you have seen that before? How many of you felt that before? You'd rather be perceived as good rather than actually being good. I probably spend more time preparing for things like teaching than actually... (laughs) Like this, this is the crazy thing. I care more about how well I do preaching with how Jesus like I was the whole way up here today. Wow. Right? And my wife says, amen. <laughs> There's never more tension in the rounds and hold than when I am going away or teaching. And he says, that's not how the family of God has to work. You have to be more in love with the goodness of your father rather than being perceived as someone who is good or you are a bad tree. And here's the thing, your fruit will show it. You can't, an apple tree cannot produce pears. That's the simplicity of what Jesus is doing. And then finally, if it's not enough, he comes after their their lack of wisdom. And this is a hard one for us to get. 
Oh, but then some of the scribes and Pharisees say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation. Gosh, Jesus is harsh. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given but that sign of the prophet Jonah. We can't get into fully that. But here's the thing. They're they're so lacking of the wisdom of God that they're not even able to hear the words of God when it's spoken from the mouth of the Messiah in their midst. They can't hear the word of God and realign and repent. They're so confused. And Jesus ties this to their demand for a sign because when we lack maturity, when we lack godly wisdom, we will settle for mere signs and big shows of power rather than consistent acts of trust, which produces wisdom. We would rather settle. We would rather settle for signs and big shows of power rather than the consistent acts of trust that produce power, produce wisdom. That is God's truth in his family. These leaders will take power and control over trust any day, but the family of God cannot be like that. Do you see now why they wanted to kill him? While they set a plot to kill him, he ripped apart everything that they thought because they were blind. They thought they were holy. They thought they had character. They thought they were wise in God's word. And of course they thought they had spiritual authority because people listened to them. And Jesus has all of these markers of who you think you are as the faithful, obedient sons and sons of the family of God. All of them have been showed fruitless. Right? Everything in their life is is undone in that moment. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, Jesus, his mothers and brothers show up trying to find him in some of the accounts of the gospels. It actually says they come to try to stop him because they think he's insane or they think he's lost his mind or they think he's, he's filled with demons. Um, they think he is not right is all you can say. Now, Mark, Matthew doesn't get into that, but he basically says they come to find him. And Jesus takes this opportunity to really put a final point on what he's getting at. And this is where I really wanna come home. Because while Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father, my father in heaven is my brother and my sister. And he hits at their obedience one last time. You've been shown to be fruitless and disobedient. Well, the new family of God will be the people who choose obedience over whatever it is you're offering. This is, it is so beautiful. It is offensive and radical. For a first century Jewish man to say that about his family is not just politically undermining, it's religiously offensive and it's jarring to his family. And at the end of these encounters where Jesus has shown the family of God to be fruitless, he completely untethers the idea of the family of God to the lineage of Israel. He says they failed to produce the type of character that could handle the mission and calling that God has set up for them that they would be the people to bless the world. 
And because they've failed to do that, we need a new answer. We need a new family. And this is the thing, that remedy reveals what the problem Jesus is answering is. From the beginning, God is looking for that people that his presence can dwell amongst. And when they fail to show up, we should already be asking, already be asking before anything. Now that we have Jewish eyes, right? Now that we've seen what the story is getting at, we should be looking at this going, all right, well, if if Israel's not the family of God, who is the family of God? If it's not your family, who is it? All of us should be, literally his audience would be like, you need to tell us because we want in. Because the family failed. Who can become the faithful family? The answer is not what anyone thinks He's not connecting it to biology. He's not connecting it to shared lineage or shared bloodline. It's no longer about who looks like me, who has the same family name, who has the same, who has the same uh, ethnicity, because ethnicity won't do, nationality won't do, language won't do, social status won't do, education won't do to define the parameters of who the family of God is because it's produced nothing. And it shakes the foundation of the people he's listening to, or the people listening to him. And T. Wright says it like this. He says, in a peasant society where familial relations provided one's basic identity, it was shocking in the extreme. In the first century Jewish culture for which the sense of familial and racial loyalty was a basic symbol of the prevailing worldview, it cannot but have been devastating. Jesus was proposing to treat his followers as a surrogate family. This had a substantial positive result that Jesus intended his followers to inherit all the closeness and all the mutual obligations that belonged with family membership in that close-knit, family-based society. This was not just extraordinarily challenging at a personal level. It was deeply subversive at a social, cultural, religious, and political lever. Jesus redefines every experience of family. And by doing that, he redefines what it means to be the faithful family of God. With one qualification, will you do the will of my heavenly father? He demands a total reordering reordering of how we prioritize the people we call family. The people who get our first yes, the people who get the first space on our calendars, the first seat at our dinner tables, at our holiday tables, the people who share our resources and share our lives. And this is shocking, but it is amazing good news because family is broken. Family is complex. Family can be brutal. Just close your eyes with me before I move on. For some of you, this is scary. For some of you, this is really good news. Because for you, from this, hmm, in your entire memory, the word family is a tinge of grief and pain. And I don't want to miss that. I don't want to miss this in some theological teaching. Family is painful at times. But the good news is, Jesus says, you are my family. 
and you have brothers and sisters and a mother and a father. And his will for you is good. And he longs for you not to do this alone. So Jesus, I just, even right now, before I continue, I just bless the men and women in this room who need to hear that. Who don't need any more judgment or conviction about joining their community. They need to be reminded that they're welcomed into a family. And may I pray that if that's the garden, that the garden would heal and redefine what family looks like for you. And that this holiday season, you would be sitting at the table of gardeners, welcomed in for the first time maybe ever to a new family. Hmm. Amen. Thank you for humoring me. I'm going to assume that doesn't go against my time teaching um, because that was not planned. John, can you strike that from the record? Um, I just, I don't want to miss that. Jesus is doing some profound, he is wrecking a whole worldview, but he's also speaking to the hearts of people who are longing. Jesus has an amazing way of doing that. I think we could, we could literally stop here, but I think the other call on the other side of this is pretty profound. And I think some of you might stop right there. And if so, just shut me down for the next 10 minutes. Don't listen to me. Because I think God wants to, speak to some of us here, you've been satisfied with sprinkling Christian community onto your already baked social life. And you call that the family of God. And Jesus wants to correct you a little bit. Right? Jesus will not be an additive in your life. The family of God cannot be just one more social group. Jesus is asking for a total reordering and restructuring of what it means to be his people. Because this is how it usually looks. And I'll do this real fast. It usually looks like your contemporary priorities look like this. Go ahead and put that slide up. Contemporary priorities. Uh, go ahead and just do the next list. Um, it usually goes, just go through all four on the left side. It usually looks like this. And this is even generous. I'm going to be generous to say that most of you in here say that God's number one, right? Even though it's probably not the case. I can say there's plenty of weeks where that's not the case. But most of us think this is how it goes. God, then my family, then church, and then maybe other people. Right? Again, I would say that's a pretty generous view of what, here's the thing, Jesus is saying this doesn't work anymore. This is not how family works. This is not how the family of God, because remember, it's not just about you. You need to be the faithful family because it's about the blessing for the world. So this structuring, even a good ordering, right? It'd be great. The New Testament is saying this. It actually looks like this. It's God's family first, which includes my family, but not limited to my family. Then, <laughs> then it's my family. Go ahead. And then it's others. How many of that is that offensive to? Yeah, thank you. One hand. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, yes. Jesus is offensive. He just defended his entire heritage, saying they're not going to be the family of God anymore. The people that do this are who know the will of my Father and do what I've asked. So that means I've got to reorder what, it, what I spend my time doing. 
Many of us in the room need to just stop right here, take a picture of this, go home and pray with your spouse, with your roommates, with your friends and family and say, Lord, where am I included in this? Where have I missed it? Where are you inviting me and challenging me into something deeper? That's a great place to stop. But there's another challenge. And I think, you know, some of you have heard this sermon before because I know Darren has talked about this before. We kind of like the same books and we like the same, um, obviously, Bible. Um, (laughs) And we like the same diagrams. So some of you have heard this before and this is like, yeah, we get it. We want to call do communion, all these things. I think the call right now is actually a little more striking Jesus has not only given us a family in a way of ordering, he gives us new characteristics of what to expect from this family. Holy, spiritual authority, character, wisdom and truth. Holy, spiritual authority, full of character, wisdom and truth. Those are the new expectations for the family of God. All of that could be summarized in doing the will of my father. But just look at that list. Do you recognize those characteristics in your definition of a spiritual community? Are those the things that we're looking for in a spiritual family? Or, if I can be honest for a second, Are we defining and describing family by what the world tells us to look for? That is, family is something where my needs are met. My my emotional needs are met. My preferences are the most important, right? We're in a church context. The teaching is good. The worship is emotionally satisfying. My ego is stroked. My schedule is mine to control. My resources are mine and my family's to control Now, don't get me wrong, it's great, isn't it, to be in a church where there is great teaching, consistent, good, and great teaching, and there is fantastic worship. And there are house churches, small groups, there's communities that are thriving. What a gift it is to be in a church where that's the case. But notice that none of those things make it into Jesus' definition of family. None of those things are listed here. And again, necessary, beautiful, good. They're not the definition of family that Jesus is getting at. You gotta remember, this is how people are included and then sent out. This is why this is the heart of the gospel of Matthew. It's the actual center because it's God's plan for renewing the world, for God's spirit to dwell among his family, for them to draw them together and set apart for the sake of the world. And the reality is we can participate in all of the structures of the church and still miss all of these things. We can come to worship. We can listen to teaching. We can join a house church. We can serve at serve day. We can be in a missional community. But if we're honest... Are we growing in holiness? Are we growing in spiritual authority, in character, in wisdom? We can participate in all the structures of a church and miss all of these things. I feel like the, I just sucked the, the air out of the room. Here's the thing. This is not a condemning message to us. 
This is a call to action. Because I am convinced that it is better to live holy, set apart for God's will, than to live under the burden of my will. Because my will is a burden. It is fickle, it is capricious, it is self-serving, it will never do good without the help of something beyond me. Even as I move towards his likeness, it's still in me. This is freedom, friends. This is what the world, a hurting world, is desperate for the church to look like this. And I, I believe that COVID has revealed the absence of these things in his church. The broader church, yes, absolutely. But in us, in us, again, this is not a condemnation. This is not judgment on you. This is, I want more. This is, I want the world to know his name because there's no sweeter name. I want, the, I want families to be whole. I want there to be not any more kids in the foster care system kids of abuse, kids of brokenness. I want that, and the answer is the family of God. Jesus is convinced of it, and I want to be convinced of it too. And that is the big question that I leave you with today. Where do you feel the sting of Jesus' correction and invitation? If you're in a committed community, a family of Christ followers, if you're in a house church, then where do you and your community need to go from here to take this call seriously? Holy, with spiritual authority, full of character, full of wisdom, doing the will of my Father. Just those holy spiritual authority, growing in character, full of wisdom and truth, obedient to the Father. I guarantee you one of those gets highlighted as you sit with them. At least, maybe all of them if you're me. You guys with me? Sorry, there's not much laughter right now. I can go back to my Jack Nicholson impression. It was pretty good. It wasn't, I know. I do bad Nicholson. But here's the thing. If you're here and the call for you is one of those things that I just mentioned, how are you going to respond? Even now, just even as you sit and reflect, how do you hear the invitation to new freedom? Obedience to the will of the Father. Power, because you are a son and daughter of the Most High, full of the Spirit of God, with spiritual authority. Growing in truth, growing in character, growing in wisdom, in, his, in the Word of God, through the Word of God, and by the Spirit of God. And I also just want to end really practically that could be for all of us. That call could be for anyone in this community, anyone who's visiting, great. That could be a call for you, and I hope it blesses you. I hope Jesus' words are profound for you. But I also think some of us had never really experienced what deep community looks like. And for some of us, the invitation is actually to commit, to step into what a family could be, to learn the challenges. And in that, I just want to end before we go into ministry time with four very simple and practical things that I think are countercultural because our cultural moment is really atrocious when it comes to community. And I want to press into these things so that we can come out the other side with the new expectation of what it means to be the family of God. 
which is, and you should say it all with me now, holy. No, you don't have to do it. I don't ever do that anymore. It always, it always, I always fall flat when I try that. But I want to say this. These are simple ways, and we can send these out. We'll, these will go out if you're in a house church. You'll get these probably in the email. Um, but these are just four simple ways that if you are not even in any community, to step into them and to step into them more deeply. Number one, we have to reorder our commitments. That means fewer but deeper relationships. We have to learn to say no to the things on the margins so that we can say yes to the right things, the right family. And we can no longer be, be a quarter committed to many relationships. No more quarter committed relationships. We have to choose family. Number two, family rituals. We ritualize what we value. It's a human instinct, not just a religious one. We ritualize what we value. We ritualize our holidays. We ritualize vacations. We ritualize our, our, our eating. We ritualize meals. We ritualize our diet and exercise plans, our, your meditation plan, whatever the thing is that you're adding to your self-help book right now. We ritualize what we value, date nights, meals, holidays, because time is more important than money, but you can't store up time. So you have to spend it daily and you have to spend it wisely. So ritualize the family values of your community, of your household. Number three, we need to slow down to grow deeply. Fast lives produce shallow relationships. Fast lives produce shallow relationships. So we must learn to slow down. And honestly, we talked about this at the kids training. Like it just hit me. The people most impacted by our hurried lives are our kids. Because they get overlooked. They learn that mom and dad won't pay attention. They learn they have to ask 15 times to be seen. They learn that they can just get by with whatever because they're never really noticed. We have a generation of kids, a generation of young adults who were counted and taken attendance of, but they were never missed because they checked them off on a list, but they never were missed when they were in the classroom because they weren't known. We have to slow down so that we can develop deep relationships. And finally, we need to name reality as it is with humility and love. It's like my little working phrase for it. Real tension is better than fictional peace. How many relationships live in fictional peace? I would rather live in real tension than in a fictional relationship. Because here's the thing, God won't do it with us. God will tear down our idols. Every time we try to prop one up and say, oh, this is God, he goes, nope. I will not be the idol that you have of me. I want you. I want you raw and broken, and I want to be able to be myself with you. So we need to do that as a family. Uh, so we need to stay current. We fight for reality now, not some potential future, future uh, not some potential future. And I just want to be clear: this is not a license to be a jerk. This is not. Oh, I just say what I feel. Any we have enough part of culture telling us to just do whatever feels good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we grow in humility and compassion, and that will lead us to difficult conversations. Right? Okay. And in all of these things, the fruit of all of those things is not just to have community. The fruit and goal of expectation in those things is holiness, spiritual authority, character, 
wisdom, and truth, and doing the will of my Father. It's the only entry thing that we have to be named the family of God, doing the will of the Father. And it's the only marker of what it means to grow, to become like him, to do his will. We become like who we're around. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.